welcome to Listen In. My name is Stephanie Gates Sloan, and I want to invite you to listen in on conversations I have with my friends as we discuss engaging college students with the gospel. Well, friend, I am so thankful for the chance for us to get to reconnect. We haven't been able to sit down together in months. And so I'm thankful just for this opportunity to have a a conversation. I just enjoy my time with you so much. And so, listeners, I want to invite you to my friend. This is Tamara L. Holmes. We met through school. We're doing different degree programs. But just by the chance um, of DBU, we got to go on a trip together. And from there, I was just really drawn to her personality. I was drawn to the way she saw and cared for people. And so we met up uh, not too long after that trip and had lunch or had dinner together and realized really quickly that we have some similar passions that started to align. We have different perspectives, uh, but similar heart. And I am just excited for us to get to dive into this conversation. So this is my friend, Tamara L. Holmes. And so I want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself. So tell everybody a little bit about you, uh, what you do, and uh, what your hope is for where God is taking you. Um, well, thank you so much, um, Stephanie, for this um, opportunity. It is most definitely um, just an honor and a privilege just to to have a conversation and um, to just be able to share my perspective and what you know God has put on my heart um, in terms of racial um, racial reconciliation in the church. Um, I um, have been in corporate America for over 20 years. Um, but interestingly enough, the Lord released me. Deliverance came <laughs> um, at the end of um, 2019. God basically told me that my assignment um, was complete. Um, and I knew for a time that he had um, been preparing me for ministry. Um, in 2007, I launched a nonprofit organization called the Epiphany Foundation that um, is geared toward helping women and girls globally to break cycles of poverty through economic uh, development um, and education initiatives. But it does have a ministry focus. Um, ultimately, um, I believe the key is helping individuals to discover their divine purpose in Christ. And in that, um, we can overcome the challenges of poverty um, and other issues. Um, so leaving corporate America after almost 20 years and just preparing um, for transition um, into full-time ministry has been um, what I've been doing um, for the past, um, I guess, five months. Um, I thought I was going to hit the ground running. You know, I had a completely different vision (laughs) of what this time was going to look like. But then the pandemic hit and I'm like, okay, God, I understand that this is a part of the process. This is preparation so that I will have all of the tools um, needed to be effective when you do release me into full time ministry. I think that's always a helpful perspective when we can look, take our disappointment 
and realize that our expectations have not worked out the way that we thought and to be able to kind of reframe it and to say, what is the Lord doing here in this moment? You didn't tell us about your education. So why don't you share a little bit about that as well? Well, (laughs) um, I am, well, someone called me an overachiever and I'll just leave (laughs) that person's um, name just out of it. But I was, I was called an overachiever. So I have a bachelor of arts in communications, public relations. Um, I have an MBA with a concentration in management. I also have a master of arts degree in theological studies with a concentration in Christian scriptures. And I am currently working on my doctorate in educational leadership um, with a concentration in uh, ministry. Yes, I would say that you are an overachiever. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to be four and done. And and it's crazy because I thought after I finished the MBA that I was done. Um, But literally the Lord calls me um, almost 20 years afterwards to go back to school and to pursue the master's um, in theology. And I'm going like, why do I need this? And so now I understand (laughs) why he called me, he's called me to ministry. Um, And so I'm just trying to be obedient. I want to be equipped um, to be able to pour out and to invest all that he has poured into me and invested into me out um to his people yeah to equip them because that's what it's all about at the end of the day it's not about me um about serving others and that should be the perspective of every christian leader is to think through how how do i develop myself and equip And it's been fun to even look back to see like how my undergrad degree is now tied into what I'm even doing today. Um, And so the conversation that I want us to have, as you know, deals specifically with racial reconciliation. And this is a topic that is very, very important to me um, and has been for the last four or five years. God has placed me in some circumstances and some ministry opportunities where I'm around a lot of people that don't look like me. And I realized very quickly that as a white woman, there were some things that I just didn't know I didn't know. And Mm -hmm. through those conversations and through building friendships and getting to live life among people who had lived situations and in circumstances that I had only seen on TV, my perspective started to shift and change. And like I said, I didn't know what I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And in those moments, the Lord really started to awaken um, some realizations and some opportunities that I felt I had to step into, specifically recognizing that the only way for me to love my friends really, really well was to start to try to have a better understanding of their experience and what their day-to-day life was like. And Mm -hmm. not just by asking them questions, which they've been super gracious to me and have let me ask questions, but by Mm -hmm. diving into books and to starting to read historical perspectives and from authors that I had never heard of and starting to see how non-whites, my non-white friends had lived their lives and the situations that they had been through and what their um, 
family and ancestors had walked through and what that experience was like. And Mm -hmm. the Lord has just continued uh, to increase um, my desire to step into this hard space and love really, really well, uh, humbly submit to learn and to see how I can help other Christian leaders who are in my shoes recognize what they don't know that they don't know. And as I've studied specifically in college ministry, it was millennials for years. And then all of a sudden it shifted and now we have this Generation Z. And so Generation Z was born in 1999 through 2015. There's about 69 to 70 million of them. This is the largest American generation that we have ever seen. And what's important to understand is when it comes to their worldview, this generation would say, based on this is Barna's statistics, that 4% of Gen Z have a biblical worldview. And so what that means is that a lot of them would say that they don't even think that lying is wrong. So 4% would say that the Bible should be my framework of how I view the world. And just to give some perspective, like millennials, it was 6%. Gen Z, it was 7%. Boomers, it was 10%. And so we're continuing to see a pretty significant decline And here's something that, as I was doing research, really stood out to me when it comes to this idea and this fact of diversity. So not only is this the largest generation that America has ever seen, it's also the most racially and ethnically diverse generation in American uh, history. And so what that means is that about half of Gen Z is non-white. And when you start to recognize that, And just the realities that that brings, that means that they're used to being around people that don't look like them. That means that they expect those around them to have different identities and different beliefs, and they welcome that. And what I started to think through was, how does my ministry reflect that and provide opportunity for those things to happen? And the more research I did, I began to recognize that many local churches, many Christian ministries have not put intentionality into understanding diversity and and starting to think through how do we pursue this. And I think one of the biggest things that I've recognized is that when a non-Christian or even a Christian Gen Z student walks into my BSM for the first time, and and if it is overwhelmingly white, and even if that student is white, they're not gonna feel at home there because it is not a reflection of their world. And so I started to wrestle with, okay, not only is my ministry primarily white five or six years ago, what do I do so that my ministry is a reflection of our campus? And that started to really um, be something that kept me awake at night. And so I started having conversations. And then I realized, I can't expect my students to hang out with people that look different than them if I'm not doing it. And so then the Lord started opening some doors for me to just start to be around people that didn't look like me, had different perspectives, like I was saying. And so now, you know, like I said, five years later, here we are having this conversation. And my hope is that we can learn uh, just from your experience and your expertise, but also just we can even come up with some practical steps that someone in ministry could take to say, okay, this maybe is something that I've never thought of, or like I said, this is something I didn't know I didn't know, and I don't know what to do with that. And so, friend, um, I just want to give you an opportunity to kind of share some perspective 
Uh, and then let's just go from there and see what we can come up with that can be helpful for anyone who may hear this. So what's what are the first things that come to mind on this really large topic? Okay. Um, well, one thing that I immediately <laughs> thought of as you were talking was that for most of my professional life, actually all of my professional life, I've lived in two worlds. I'm African-American. Um, I went to um, an all-Black elementary school and an all-Black, um, all-girl high school. Um, but when I um, graduated high school, I had, I knew I was going on to college. I knew, you know, that I had a number of options. Um, or direction that I could go in terms of the college that I chose. And I made a conscious decision that I didn't want to go to an HBCU, a historically black you know, college or university. Um, I didn't want to go to a predominantly black university because the world that I was you know, embarking upon was not just made up of people who look like me. So at 18 years of age, I made a decision um, to attend a predominantly white university. So I attended Loyola University in New Orleans, which is a Jesuit institution. And looking back in hindsight, that was one of the best decisions that I could have ever made because it prepared me um, for the real world. It prepared me for, you know, at that time, what I hoped my career would be and how I would be able to function, thrive, and grow within my career. Um, and it paid off. Um, I mentioned that I, I worked in the corporate sector for over 20 years. Um, I worked for J.P. Morgan Chase um, as an account slash market manager. So I managed a $100 million portfolio um, in two states, in all of their client relationships in two states. Um, and there were very few African-Americans um, alone, let alone African-American women. Um, and so it was pretty much a white male dominated um, environment and industry. Um, and so that brings on a completely different dynamic when, you know, you start talking about preparation and and being comfortable um, in your own skin and, and in who you are and who God created you to be um, in that kind of environment. Um, the company that I just left um, was an energy company. Again, another white male dominated industry. Um, and I was in HR um, in that particular role. It was at that particular company that I realized, okay, God, you positioned me and you've allowed me to have all of these experiences for my education um, up until now where I've lived literally in two worlds. And so who best, <laughs> who best um, to be an ambassador for diversity and a bridge to help people understand. Um, I actually had, and I'll never forget this, it was the craziest thing ever. And one of my coworkers, and I love him dearly, one of my former coworkers told me 
um, he said, you, he didn't understand why my political views were at that time what they were. Um, and they were very different from his. And he said, you know, politically you believe just as I do in your heart, you just don't know it. And I said, okay, well, what makes you think that? And he said, because look at all of your friends and, you know, look at all of the things that you've been exposed to in your life. And I said, hold on, let me tell you this. I said, all of, you know, the programs and, you know, things that you're, you're thinking of from welfare to food stamps, I have benefited from every single one of those programs at some point or another in my life. I said, so while God has blessed me to be, you know, exposed and to have an education, a great education, a family who believed in education and supported me, I can't forget where I came from. I can't abandon my Black culture all together and just say, okay, now I live in, you know, a lily white world and now I identify, you know, solely with white culture and, and, you know, I've abandoned my, my heritage. I said, I, I can't. And so that was eye opening for him. And so I realized at that point, okay, Lord, you really have, you know, given me an opportunity to help people understand, yes, you know, there are differences. While I live and work, you know, in a predominantly white world and, and I'm comfortable there because I've, I have I've, I have friends, you know, of, of different races and cultures and ethnicities, um, I'm comfortable thriving in that context, but that does not mean that I've abandoned you know, my heritage and who I, who I am at the core of the core of things. So I'm really interested in also hearing what was your perspective going in to Loyola and what was that experience like? Because as someone who's done college ministry for 14 years, I know what it's like when a student walks onto a campus for the first time and it's like, they're literally an adult and they realize in that moment, it is my responsibility to keep myself alive. And then you factor <laughs> in other aspects that I'm sure you experienced uh, walking onto that campus. And so I would just love to, to kind of, if you will, if you want to share um, about what that was like, and then kind of even shifting from a college experience into this white business world um, where all of a sudden you're not someone that's just going to sit in the back of the room. Uh, you're not someone like, that's one of the things I love about your personality is <laughs> you, your presence is known just because of the smile on your face, just because of the way you care for people. And so I know that you were seen and noticed in those experiences, both at college and at work. And so I would just love to even say, okay, hearing what you've already shared is so gracious and thank you for sharing. Oh, you're most but I also want to hear, like, I want to hear the heart behind that experience too. Well, um, one of the things that I I have to say, I loved my Loyola 
experience, my time at Loyola. Um, it was expensive, but DBU is just as expensive. <laughs> but if I had to do it all over again, um, I would most definitely do it all over again. One of the, the reasons that I chose Loyola was because they prided themselves on diversity and making diversity a huge part um, of the, the school's culture. And while it was predominantly white, and I want to say from the time that I was there, I'm about to give away my age, um, from 92 until 1996, I think the university between the um, um, uh, main campus and the law school was probably 10% Black, 10% African-American. Um, so <laughs> that's not, you know, that's that's not a lot. And I don't know. Don't remember how many um, students we actually had at that time. But one of the things that they prided themselves on was creating a culture of diversity. Um, high school seniors um, had an opportunity, were interested in you know, uh, attending the university, um, African American women specifically. There was a program or an organization on campus called the Black Student Union. And they hosted a preview weekend where you got to stay on campus and you basically were um, assigned to other African-American students who kind of took you on a tour and helped you to become familiar, you know, with the university, the campus programs. Um, so when you got to campus on fall, in the fall, you weren't left to your own devices to survive, you know, um, or, or basically just fall to the wayside, you actually had a, a community of support. And I think that was truly beneficial um, and one of the main reasons why I was able um, to thrive yeah. there um, because I wasn't alone. There were other people who looked like me who were having this same experience with me um, who were progressing and matriculating, you know, um, along in their education. Yeah. So I think that was, that was essential having, having that, mm -hmm. having that community. Um, and also, um, because the university was, was, um, intentional about creating a culture of, of diversity, um, that helped because that message trickled, uh, trickled down from the, the university leadership all the way down to the professors, all the way down to the students and to the community at large. That is what they were known for, an inclusive environment. Um, I, know, and so, I know that a lot of places, sorry to interrupt, but I want to have you tease something out for us. The term diversity or even multi-ethnic is often... Um, thrown out and saying this is we care about diversity we care about these things our demographic is this mm -hmm. but it doesn't always filter into the culture of the place uh, so can you just give some examples of how you felt like diversity was not just a word that was being thrown out but it was actually infiltrating culture um how would you, like, what are some examples that maybe come to mind uh, that show that that was actually not just in their mission statement, but it was their mission? Um, I think 
part of it was, of course, reaching out. So again, my school, I attended an all-girl um, private high school, and it was African-American, all African-American, 100% um, of the student population was African-American. Um, and so they, they recruited at those schools. And because a number of families um, weren't able to afford the tuition, they provided resources. So it's like one thing to say, you know, oh yeah, we're, you know, diverse and, you know, we want a diverse student population, but, you know, and we're recruiting, you know, in those communities, but the kids can't afford to come here. So they actually made, you know, academic scholarships available. Now, mind you, you still had to meet <laughs> the entrance requirements, um, but they provided, you know, financial um, support to make you know, the dream of attending college and university affordable um, and truly available um, to students from those communities. So I think that was, so I think that was a key way um, that they demonstrated that they were serious about diversity. Um, and then when we got there, there was a community of support. Um, the Black Student Union that, of course, was one of many organizations on campus um, that was governed and sanctioned by the university and supported you know, financially by the university to make sure that when the students got there, the African-American students got there, that we had a community of support. That's great. To help us, you know, fry mm -hmm. while we were there. So were, did you have any of like similar experiences of not only being wanted uh, because of uh, it provided diversity at the university, but like you're saying, like they, it was an intentional, you could tell that that was part of their mission. Did you experience that in the workplace? That same kind of you're wanted and welcome here that Loyola did? Um, <laughs> uh, I at Chase because it is a global enterprise. Um, diversity was definitely um, more um, at the forefront of how they did business because of, again, just the sheer dynamic of um, their workforce, their work locations, geographical locations. Um, they had to pay attention to diversity. And within um, the Chase organization as a whole, there were a number of affinity groups. So um, affinity groups for African-American employees, for you know, female employees. Um, so they were really, I think at that time, on the cutting edge of you know, making sure that, that diversity was at the forefront. So I really didn't didn't feel at a disadvantage coming in um, to my specific line of business while it was only there were only two in my line of business two African American um, account managers um, and one was on the same team as I was and one African American 
male. And then there was uh, a third African-American female who worked on the support side. So all in all, we had, it was four of us, (laughs) four of us out of, um, oh my gosh, probably a hundred, 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 a hundred fifty um, employees just within our line of business because it was the student loan uh, division. So coming into that environment, I was secure because I I had, you know, my education. Um, I had experience um, in that space. I worked for Louisiana Guarantor um, for a number of years, and I had already formed relationships within the organization and that line of business. Um, I had done workshops um, with a number of their VPs and their their, uh, account managers. So before I even worked for the organization, I had already built a reputation for myself and built relationships. Um, so that by the time I was brought into, people knew me, people knew, you know, kind of how I how I did business and how I did things. And so that was a huge help. However, <laughs> at the company um, that I recently left um, in the energy space, it was a different ballgame because it was a smaller um, privately held company. We had, um, I want to say by the time I left, maybe 700 employees total. And we did have some challenges. Um, There were some double standards um, uh, just within our business practices. And again, um, just a handful of African-American employees. And we had some issues. And and there was an incident where our chairman actually um, uh, sent out an email uh, that had an inappropriate um, uh, racially charged uh, attachment. Mm-hmm. And um, that kind of sent things into a tailspin. Um, and I, I, yeah, I couldn't, I could not not say anything. Yeah. So at that point, that meant taking on the chairman of the company to say, hey, you know, this was inappropriate. You have alienated an entire segment, you know, although a small segment, a small fragment of our employee population, but a a fragment um, nonetheless. Um, But basically having, you know, an opportunity to, and I, I hate to use the word calling out because I, that wasn't my heart's intention behind it, but to say, hey, this is not okay. And to, because of that, um, have an opportunity to sit down with him and say, this is an issue. And not only is this an issue, but we have a double standard in our organization when it comes to, you know, minority employees and, you know, our, our other the majority employees and things that you know are afforded to them that our minority employees aren't afforded. Would you and, would you share some an example of of what you mean? Uh, compensation, because again, I was in HR. I was an HR business partner, so everything, all of the closed door conversations, um, typically happened 
behind the closed door of my office or with me in a closed door behind um, uh, in our, our president's office um, of the line of business that I supported here in Texas. Um, and, you know, just saying, okay, we did this for this particular employee and I have this employee over here asking for the same thing and we told them, no, it's not possible. Um, we've selected this employee to be a part of, you know, the mentoring program, but I have people over here who would love training and to be part of the mentoring program, but they haven't been identified, you know, as for whatever reason, you know, um, being potential candidates to participate. So it was having those conversations and, and literally sitting down and explaining to our chairman because it was, you know, based on the scripture. And I believe it's um, Matthew 18 that talks about <clears throat> when you have um, a grievance um, with your, with your, your brother, you know, you don't <laughs> basically, you know, take it to the street. You sit down with him and you you talk about it and so when we sat down i wanted to make it perfectly clear that i want us to have this conversation from the perspective of reconciliation and finding solutions to you know our differences and and how these these disparities you know have come about and what we can do to rectify well, I appreciate you just not only sharing your experience, but also giving an example. I think that one of the things that I always try to do is to make something as practical or as tangible as I can. And mm -hmm. I have found uh, personal perspective uh, is always really, really helpful. But I also know that that's those are hard situations that I'm sure yeah. stir up hurt feelings. And oh, yeah. I... I I apologize. Um, first off, that you've had to walk through it. And also, like, thank you for your grace to walk through it again just now. Because um, my hope is I know when I first started stepping into these spaces, I didn't even know what differences were happening. I didn't know um how my experience was different. And I have found um, that it's in those moments when a friend of mine lets me step into um, maybe the pain or just this experience, it, get, it starts to give me a framework as to what's really happening. Um, okay. And as someone who is in leadership, um, that's important. And I, so I just, I just want you to know, I appreciate you um, letting us into that because I know that that is uh, that's not pleasant uh, and that was your grace to us and so thank you <laughs> just you're as most, your you're friend um, it was a difficult time and when it all happened I wanted to quit yeah I wanted to leave I was just like I am done and God said no mm -hmm. he said no he said you know you were brought <laughs> to this place for such a time as this. You will be the one to use your voice and to speak up. And keep in mind too, 
there were a number, while there were very few African-American people in the company, very few people wanted to say anything because it's like, well, will I lose my job? Will there be, will there be retaliation if I say anything? And so taking all of that into consideration and having them come to me and say like, this isn't right, you know, but I can't say anything. Taking it upon myself to say, okay, I've got nothing to lose. What's the worst thing you can do to me? Yeah. Fire me? I have three degrees. <laughs> like I'm employable. Yeah. So <laughs> that was, you know, that was the, that was the, you know, uh, approach that I took, but also thinking about it from Jesus' perspective of leadership. Okay, so I'm in this this role, you know, as an HR um, uh, business partner and privy to confidential information on the highest level of confidential information. Um, but thinking about, you know, well, what would Jesus do? Jesus basically said, you know, leadership is not Jesus' perspective of leadership was, okay, I have to stand for kingdom truth. I'm accountable to the kingdom. I'm accountable to God, not according to, not, not to man and not to the world's standards. So even if that means speaking against what, you know, injustices, you know, have transpired, even if I have to do it alone, as a believer, I have an obligation to lead by example. And so I said, I'll be the one, you know, I, I have nothing to, what's the worst you can do to me? And because we have laws in this, you know, country against discrimination, it's just like, well, you better have a good, good ground if you do decide to terminate me because <laughs> you could potentially be sued. But thank God we didn't have to go um, through that. But it wasn't, it wasn't easy, but it was, you know, it was scary mm -hmm. to be that one, to be all out saying, okay, I'm going to be the one to speak up and say, hey, Houston, we have a problem. Yeah, We can't continue. We can't continue like this. And I think in the end, um, it becomes a matter of will. I can tell you what the problem is. The question becomes, do you have the will and the heart to change it once yeah. you know, or are you just content to turn a blind eye or to retain a blind eye to it? And I'll never forget we shared, um, because there were several meetings with several um, key um, key leaders, including the president of the line of business that I supported here in Texas. And I remember us having a conversation of, you know, a traffic stop, a traffic stop for my child as an African-American is very different from, you know, what a traffic stop could potentially be for your child. Yeah. And having that sink in, like the realization sink in of what that means. That was one of the first stories that one of the basketball players I was working with four or five years ago, uh, there had just been, um, it was a summer where there had been a number of shootings, specifically mm -hmm. uh, police-involved traffic stop shootings. And I'm sitting in Panera across from this basketball player who had come from Pensacola, Florida. Her mom had been involved in drugs. She had done the same thing. And she's like, that was how we survived. Mm -hmm. And... She started 
graciously just talking with me through and letting me ask some questions. And it was in those moments when she said, Stephanie, when I leave the house, I never know if I get to come home. And my mom sat me down and told me that. And when I go into a store, I can't put my hands in my pockets. I can't put my hand in my purse. I can't put a hoodie on. When I'm in my car um, and I get pulled over, the amount of fear that I feel. And I, my mom told me, do not take your hands off the steering wheel. Yep. Look straight ahead. And driver's license on the dashboard. Yes. If you're traveling out of town. And yeah. as I was sitting there in Panera, she was the only non-white person in the room. And we had the tables around us somehow were the only ones that were full. And it was all other white people. And I noticed in that moment that they were listening to our conversation. Um, and I just remember sitting there tears in both of our eyes and in that moment realizing that things had not changed as much as I wanted to think they had changed over the years when it comes to racism and in that moment I I just asked her I said have you ever had this kind of a conversation with someone who looks like me and she said Stephanie no white person has ever cared enough to ask yeah. And in that moment, she wasn't just TJ, the basketball player, to me. She was TJ, my basketball player. We hung out all the time. She would come to my house. Um, same thing with the rest of those girls. And for me to think about her not being able to come home or something could have happened to her when she was driving to my house, It was no longer a story on the news. It was my family. And that experience is really what propelled me into recognizing what I know of the world is not true. And that's not okay. Um... And I did not know where to start. (laughs) I was like, how do I reframe? What do I do? And here are these 18 to 22-year-old girls that are on this basketball team that have graciously let me just sit here and ask them questions. And I remember before many conversations just saying, if I say something that is offensive, do you please tell me? I don't want to offend. I just want to understand. And it was in those moments that I saw that they first started to trust me. And mm-hmm. to realize that I was one of the first white people, white persons, like that they felt like you care about me mm-hmm. and I might be able to trust you. It took me two years to gain some of their trust. And I get it. <laughs> and it was no surprise to me that it took that time. And what's cool now is because so many of the girls love me when we get new girls that come in, I have this mm-hmm. instant credibility, which is amazing <laughs> to have. But um, it was that conversation in Panera that changed my life and has led to me trying to think through what does this look like as 
a Christian, and then obviously within my context, my vocational context of being a campus minister at a university that has over 38,000 students, that many of them are ethnically different than I am. Some are coming from all these other countries, and yet I haven't taken the time to start to figure out what is your experience when you walk on this campus? What is your experience here? And so um, I think had it not been through God's grace of placing me there, that there would be a lot that I just wouldn't even know I didn't know. And so I thank you for even just like using those examples because I have found in the conversations that I have with, with other white people that they don't even know that either. Um, and it shouldn't be that way. No. That's how change occurs is when reality is presented and what I have found. And even in my own heart, when I'm first hearing these stories, before there was a face that I loved tied to it, uh, it was really easy to try to explain it away. Um, mm-hmm. And now uh, I realize the sin and the privilege that is behind that explanation. And um, because of that, I want to step into those spaces where I celebrate the difference between you and me. Um, Mm -hmm. Like my own father, well, he'll say, well, I'm colorblind. And I'm like, that is offensive. Like, let's talk about that statement itself. And he's like, what do you mean? And like, when I start to step into those spaces with other people uh, that look like me, I have found that it takes a while <laughs> to kind of start to to peel the layers of an untrue reality. But as Christians, like that's what we're supposed to be doing. Like we are supposed to step into those spaces. We're supposed to be those ambassadors that are going in and saying, I want to provide not only reconciliation, to you and to the Lord, but what is it like for us to reconcile culturally amongst one another? And that's something, you know, you and I were talking about when we were having dinner. And so I want to kind of pivot us and unless you have more perspective you want to share. um, And if you do, we'll go from that into my pivot. But I really, my hope is to not only paint a picture um, to broaden reality, deepen reality, and say, this is what's happening uh, to our brothers and sisters that love Jesus and those that don't, that look different than me, and I don't get to just ignore it. And so what do I do? And then as Christian leaders, practically, what does it look like for me to step into those spaces and to pursue racial reconciliation? Because what I have found is it's very easy to say I care about that and I want that. I want a racially diverse ministry or a church or an organization. And in fact, I've seen it. Um, As a ministry, I work with over 90 churches. And every year they have to turn in this church study thing. I forget what it's actually called. And one of those things is ethnicities. And I visit these churches. And I'll look and I'll see that they'll talk about being multi-ethnic. And I would ask the pastors about that or even our leader of our association. And actually that our associational leader, he and I were having a conversation and he was like, yeah, I'm wrestling with, do we let a church say that they're multi-ethnic if they only have like one or two non-white families? And I said, no, in fact, that's lying and that shows privilege. 
And what you have done is you, you've set up that church to damage their witness. If someone looks at their website or your website and they see multi-ethnic and they walk in and no one else, like there's no other ethnicity but white showing in that room. And I was like, so you have also perpetuated that lie. And yeah. I could see his thought process of, okay, like we need to figure something out. Uh, but I can't tell you how many churches I've seen say this is who we are when it is not, it's what you want to be, but you're not. And, and so friend, from your wisdom and experience and just grace, what would you say uh, are some practical steps that those of us in ministry can take to say that I don't just want racial reconciliation, but I'm willing to step into it? Well, I think we are, we're in, we're in an interesting um, time. And as I was just praying about this conversation, um, I asked the Lord, you know, what is it that, what is it that you'd like me to impart? What are your steps um, for practical steps that, you know, the church can take toward racial reconciliation? And um, he gave me three perspectives to consider. And these perspectives are based on where we are in this season, um, the pandemic, and where we are as the body of Christ. Um, So the first one is just an old perspective. Um, As the body of Christ, we have got to stop looking at our differences. That's that's key. Um, Our denominational differences, our political views and party differences, our socioeconomic differences, and our race and cultural differences. One of the scriptures that has just been, um, uh, has kept coming up just since this pandemic has started, has been Isaiah 43 and 18. And it says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. I believe that God is shifting us in this season um, from how we've done church, um, our perspective of church and the body of Christ. Um, he's he's shifting. <laughs> he's shifting us from an old perspective or an old worldview, if you will. The word of God doesn't change, but God does shift and he does move um, in seasons. And so I believe that we have to stop looking at things from the old paradigm, you know, of differences, denominational differences, um, and race and cultural differences. And we need to adopt or basically evaluate a current perspective. And that is, who are we as the body of Christ? Well, let's look at what scripture says. Scripture says that we are one body made up of many parts. And 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 13 reminds us of just that. Just as a body has many parts, we're all individual members who make up the body of Christ. Um, Romans 12 Verses 5 through 16, again, reiterates this idea of the one body. We all have different perspectives, different experiences, um, different and unique gifts that all make us individually important to the body of Christ and to the Great Commission because we all are tasked with the Great Commission 
um, and winning souls for the kingdom. And then last, Galatians 3, verse 28, further illustrates, again, this concept of oneness in Christ, reminding us that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. And we can extend that to Black, white, Asian, Hispanic. We are all one in Christ. So that takes us to, okay, well, we're shifting from this old perspective. We have to take an assessment of where we are as a body of Christ. Who are we? Well, we're one. Okay. So then that means that we have to adopt a new perspective. And I believe that the pandemic has ushered in just a new dispensation of time. We have crossed over to the end times, folks. If if people don't understand that, um, news flash. This pandemic has ushered us into a new dispensation. Um, And that means that we should be focused and prepared on the return of Jesus and preparing people for the return of Jesus. He's coming sooner than folks realize. Um, And that means that You know, again, we have to look at what God is doing in this season. And I have to keep going back to scripture because this scripture has just been reverberating. Again, Isaiah 43, verse 19 says, see, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? Well, let's go even further to what the Bible says about heaven in Revelation. 7 verse 9, it says, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. There's going to be diversity in heaven. Amen. So again, if, if folks have never thought about, you know, what heaven is going to be like, or if it's just going to be, you know, people who look like me. And even when we go back to scripture in the Great Commission, he says our job in the Great Commission is to go to all the nations. Mm-hmm. Well, if we're going to all nations to bring them into the kingdom, well, that must mean that heaven's going to be diverse. Yeah. So I believe that this is the time for us to truly shift our perspective about what heaven is going to be like, the fact that it is going to be diverse. And I believe that racial reconciliation starts with unity. Mm. Creating unity is everybody's job. It's every believer's responsibility. So I said all that to say, yes. to get to the five steps. <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> so I believe that it's imperative that we put ourselves in the position of others who don't look like us. Um, The second thing is seeking to understand and accepting the fact that we're not going to always agree. But just, just because we don't agree doesn't mean that that's grounds for division. We can agree to disagree. But let's at least make the effort to seek to understand, to put ourselves in other people's shoes. And then the third thing is that the Bible must be our standard and our accountability guide. We live in the world, but we're not of this world. Yeah. So we can't use the world's standards and the world's principles to govern our lives. We have to use biblical principles. And then the fourth thing is that the greatest commandment that Jesus gave us was love. 
um, he said, we are to love God first, and then we're to love one another. First John 4 and 20, and this really drives that point home because it asks the question, well, how can you say you love God whom you've never seen, but you hate or you don't love your brother and sister whom you have seen? Yeah. The two can't coexist. So if we truly say that we love God, then that means that we have to love our brothers and sisters, even those who don't look like us. And God has been dealing with me just recently teaching me about love. Love isn't just a feeling. And you touched on this earlier. It's not just a feeling or words. Oh, I love you. Love is action. Yeah. Love is action. And so um, I believe that in this pandemic, you know, we have a great opportunity to, to start practicing love and action. And that means stepping outside of our comfort zone, yeah. getting to know people who don't look like us, seeking to understand, seeking to put ourselves in their positions and to try to understand life from their perspective and their day-to-day -day reality. Because at the end of the day, living in the skin of a Black person or a Hispanic person, and even now an Asian person, because of where the pandemic, you know, was initiated, yeah. it's completely different. And so the only way we can do that is by stepping outside of our comfort zone. And then the last thing that I believe that is most important of all of these steps is that God is calling us out of religious tradition and into true relationship with him. And that means that we have to adopt lifestyles that truly worship him in spirit and in truth. This is not the time to be lukewarm. Yeah. This is not. We have to stand on the truth of God's word and we have to speak out against injustice using the Bible as our our um, our guide. Yeah, I think for too long, it has been easy to say we're a part of a Christian nation or this country was founded on these Christian principles, you know, our pledges, you know, in God we trust. It says it on our money. And when I have that kind of a conversation with someone and I just, I just say, you obviously are not paying attention to what <laughs> yeah. is happening. I remember when I was, you know, in high school, it was financially beneficial for someone to be a part of a local church. Well, those things have gone away and we're starting to see uh, a separation of where it's culturally beneficial to be Christian. So now mm -hmm. thanks to postmodernism and all these other things that we could get into because of our never ending school yeah. that, have now made it to where it's almost no longer culturally acceptable to be Christian in certain parts of the world and even certain parts of our country. And to be really yeah. honest on my campus and because of those things, I feel like I've been given that opportunity to have to learn how do I step into a place where the fact that my job is campus minister, I'm flying the Christian flag and that already put up a bigger wall. And I work at the Baptist Student Ministry, which built a bigger wall. And so I've had to figure out what does this look like to step into a place that is very different than the world I thought I grew up in and to figure out how do I love someone who believes very, very different than me? 
who is very, who's raised different than I was, who comes from a different culture or country than I did. And I'm thankful for those experiences because I feel like um, the Lord has kind of opened my eyes to recognize like this is where we really are. I think the college campus gives us a good picture of mm-hmm. not only where culture is, but where we're going. And uh, that's just been really, really helpful. And so I think those five steps are really, really true because I've seen them happen uh, mm-hmm. when we pursue unity, when we love one another, when we place ourselves in someone else's situation. Um, mm-hmm. And we do it because Jesus did that for us. And yeah. that's where it all goes. Like the gospel is God came down, made himself man, mm-hmm. lived a perfect life, died a death that was for me so I could be reconciled to him. And because that's how he showed me what it looked like to be reconciled to somebody else and to love somebody else. And yes. I don't get to see that as often as I wish I could in the church. I don't wow. get to see that as often as I think it should be happening around us. And I think you're right. Times are changing. We are now in a situation where none of us know what next month is going to look like. Are we still going to be held at home? Are we going to like, I don't even know how to plan for my job. I don't even know. Are there going to be students on campus this summer? Are there going to be students on campus in the fall? And so literally right now we're having to open handily say, Lord, what's next? And I think that that's an, that, this is an opportunity that could be ripe with uh, opportunities to abide in Christ so that he can grow fruit within us that is going to draw others to him um, mm-hmm. and the opportunity to step into some spaces. You just said when we were talking beforehand, you know, you're single, you've been in your house alone and yeah. like <laughs> we should be looking out for our single friends that are in their homes alone, you know, like, yeah. and I, I've walked through in the middle of the pandemic, you know, I lost my brother and having people and seeing how people have loved me through that. Um, You know, I got married and seeing how people have loved me through. I didn't get to have my wedding. I had it in the backyard underneath a camo tent. And I never thought that would be the picture that my wedding would be, but it was, and it was perfect. Um, And so I, I love what you've shared And I think it's really, really helpful. And I really appreciate that you did the work to tie it to scripture. Um, Because it's really easy to say, okay, I know this is what the Bible says, but when Mm -hmm. you can literally say, okay, especially in something that pushes our comfort zone so much, that pushes us out of it, we need to be reminded of why. And I thank you for, for doing that, even just for me. Um, to be reminded of, yeah, this is who God was. This is what he's called us to do. Uh, we are one body of believers, and what does that look like? Um, and so I appreciate just the time you put in to prepare uh, and just your willingness to have this conversation. Um, and so I always do this kind of at the end. I give whoever I'm talking to just a chance. I'm like, is there anything else that you're like, man, I wish we would have talked about this, or I really want to say that? So is there any other final thought? And then I have one question I ask at the end as well. So any other final thoughts that you would like to share? You know me. Of course there's a final thought. thought. And it's interesting because we were together for this. Mm -hmm. Um, Last summer when we were in Washington, D.C. for our um, doctoral leadership institute, Mm -hmm. 
and we have an opportunity to visit a number of places. Um, two in particular were the National Museum of African American History and Culture and the Holocaust Museums. And so I just remember um, after um, we got back from the trip, one of the assignments was we had to write a reflection paper about the entire you know trip. And I I remembered that in my paper, just two things you know just stuck out from those two particular museums, um, and that was that you know yes we've come a long way. Um, in terms of trying to get to a place where, you know, we've and trying to get to a place of reconciliation, but we still have a long way to go um, to just reach a true place of healing and understanding and mutual respect and reconciliation and love. And I just remember um, at the Holocaust Museum, there was this plaque and oh my gosh, it just, the words were profound and and I'll never forget it. And the plaque read and, and the Holy Spirit dropped this on me as I was just um, wrapping up, you know, finalizing my notes for this, um, for the podcast. He said, read it the way that it's written, that, that read it the way that it was written on the plaque and then read it within the context of racial reconciliation. Okay. And I said, okay, Holy Spirit, I will do it. So I'll read it exactly the way that it was written on the plaque. It says, first they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. I remember that. So I'd like to read it within a context of race. First, they came for the Black people, and I did not speak out because I was not Black. Then they came for the Hispanics, and I did not speak out because I was not Hispanic. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. So I just believe that <laughs> that statement was just a sobering reminder that as believers and ministry leaders, we are ambassadors for Christ. And that means that we have a duty and an obligation to stand for biblical truth and against injustice, even if it means standing alone and even if it means facing the possibility of death. Yeah. We have to speak out. Mm -hmm. That's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> That's truth. Yeah. I remember standing there and reading that. Um, and those two days were back to back where we went to those two different museums. And I just remember talking to some people. I was like, these were heavy days. Um, yeah. But in the context of what we were there to do, it was necessary uh, yeah. and provided a lot of reflection. And so I appreciate uh, you bringing that reminder back uh, to me. 
And so, friend, there's one last question I always ask. And okay. that question is this. Um, you know I care about college students. It's what I do. And yeah. so I always ask my friends this one question. Why do you think the local church should care about engaging college students with the gospel? Because they're the future yeah. of the church. They will. They are the future leaders of the church. So the word specifically says, train up a child in the way that he should go so that when he is old, he will not depart. So we start training them, hopefully, you know, from the time that they're babies to, you know, elementary school to high school. Well, that training doesn't stop once they get to college. Yeah. <laughs> and they have great influence and even more influence now in the 21st century with all of the social media platforms. They're connected in a way that we've never been connected exactly. before. And I believe that God is raising them up to give them influence they truly are called for such a time as this but how can they how can they go forth if no one shares the word with them if no one brings the light of christ to them amen i agree so friend i just am thankful you've given me almost two hours of your time and oh my goodness, I'm, I'm no no <laughs> I'm thankful just uh, for this and just, like I said, to get to reconnect with you. And I'm thankful for you sharing your experience and honestly, just like I said, helping us know what we didn't know and providing some helpful steps uh, for us to pursue as Christian leaders and reminding hopefully anyone who listens about the importance of unity and love um, and getting to know people who are different than us. And so friend, I'm, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for you. And um, we, our schedules never work. So we don't ever really get to connect as often as I would like to. Uh, and we're not going to get to see each other this summer for the next trip. I know because, well, yes, because our Oxford trip yes. has been canceled. But hopefully, hopefully they will allow us to do it next that's summer. what i had heard and we will um still have that experience but of course i'm not going to wait until next summer um for our next dinner date yes um, <laughs> i have to cook <laughs> we over, have to get together um, yes to my house mm. we will most definitely yeah. get together yes well i'm i'm thankful for you i'm thankful for your heart I'm thankful that uh, you have let me even ask questions. Uh, you've let me um, just from afar watch as you have stepped out in faith, trusting that the Lord is going uh, to provide and lead you in this next phase. Um, that takes faith and obedience. And as your friend, that stirs my affections for the Lord just by seeing you Say, Lord, I'm willing to do this. And so thank you for that and for just that example. And so um, I can't wait for the opportunity for people to get to, to hear this. So if someone would like to follow up with you and maybe continue this conversation, is there a way that they could contact you, a website that you may have? Yes. Um, my website is theepiphanyfoundation.org. Okay. Well, then um, I will... I'm also on Twitter. Okay. And the Epiphany Foundation has a Facebook page. Perfect. Well, so I'll make sure to link those as well. Okay. All of that information is on the website, theepiphanyfoundation.org. Well, thank you. And um, 
I can't wait to see what the Lord is going to do. And uh, as he continues to prepare you for what's next. And so I'm excited uh, when we step out in obedience and we get to see the Lord move and work in ways that we can't even imagine. And so I think that I'm excited to get to watch that happen in your life. Thank so, you. So thank you thank again you. for this time and uh, for, for participating. It was fun. Well, I'm glad. <laughs> I love it too. So, well, I'm going to turn us off and then you and I can continue our conversation. Okay, very good. If you would like to continue this conversation, you can contact me at stephaniegatessloan.com. The music was created by my talented friend, Vince Romanelli. Thanks for listening.